The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This just was a kind of almost a hostile environment to anything that was a departure from the straight growth platform. And in fact, I think some of the people in Newsfeed Ranking even used the words user value was synonymous with usage time. In other words, we increased user value means that like people spent more time on the platform and like that was viewed as being an inherent good, which again, like I'm not saying there might not be a correlation, but that seems, uh, shall we say, like you're, you're deliberately setting yourself up to miss things. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, December 20th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. In 2021, the Wall Street Journal published a monster scoop, a series of articles about Facebook's inner workings, which showed that employees within the famously secretive company had raised alarms about potential harms caused by Facebook's products. Now, Jeff Horwitz, the reporter behind that scoop, has a new book out titled Broken Code, which dives even deeper into the documents he uncovered from within the company. He's one of the most rigorous reporters covering Facebook, now known as Meta, and we're excited to have him on the show to discuss his work. I sat down with Jeff along with Matt Peralt, the director of the Center on Technology Policy at UNC Chapel Hill, and also someone with close knowledge of Meta from his own time working at the company. The three of us discussed Jeff's reporting and debated what his findings tell us about how Meta functions as a company and how best to understand its responsibilities for harms traced back to its products. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 20th. Jeff Horwitz on broken code and reporting on Facebook. So the book is a follow-up or expansion of sorts to your 2021 series with the Wall Street Journal called The Facebook Files, which is based in part on internal company documents that were provided to you by whistleblower Francis Haugen. Just to start us off, what did you find in that reporting and what led you to write this book? I think what sort of those documents were a pretty key part of the uh, the journey on was trying to understand the choices that Facebook, now Meta, had made and how that shaped the experience and problems uh, that users faced on its platforms and sometimes off, right? So I think like 
the the rhetoric of the platform has always been like this is just a neutral place where people post content and somehow you know the stuff that is most of interest to them rises to the top and that's you know just simply not an accurate or full picture given you know sort of the the power that uh the company and its staff uh wields over what content succeeds, what features uh, are uh, deployed, you know, what is prioritized in terms of the weighting of algorithms. And so like this was kind of an effort to sort of get into the mechanics. And that's something I've been working on for a while, obviously um, trying to sort of connect those mechanics to concerns about social media and in particular Meta's products uh, effects on the world uh, was kind of the goal. And and I, I think... I'd covered the company long enough to know that if you want to understand Meta, you had to be inside Meta, right? Like trying to study the platform externally is uh, is very much harder than uh, an environment where you can just sort of run A/B tests. So, kind of like that was kind of always the north star in terms of where the information was going to be. Yeah, I found this metaphor of machinery really helpful sort of mechanics. And you have a um, sort of a mission statement or what I read as a mission statement uh, partway through the book where you describe watching the the live reactions come in in response to uh, remarks about free speech that Mark Zuckerberg gave in, in 2019 and noticing that there was seemed to you that there was something distorted about the kinds of reactions that were surfacing um, and feeling, and I'll just quote you here, that What you weren't understanding was, and I quote, that beneath the surface of a platform where users could post and interact was a hell of a lot of machinery. Servicing it would surely require professional mechanics, people who understood how the components worked and what to do when they broke. And your reporting is really about understanding those mechanics and that machinery. And I find that so interesting in part because I feel like I don't actually see a lot of that type of reporting when it comes to Facebook and social media companies. So can you talk about why that angle is so important and how that sort of informs what you're doing here in the book? Yeah. And I think some of this goes back to sort of when I started covering the company, which was early 2019. You know, I came from covering politics. I almost sort of had been like almost I paid attention to this stuff because it was re- relevant to to just the world in general, um, you know, tech reporting could have took over all the other types of reporting to some degree. But I think I, I, in some ways, benefited from not having sort of been steeped in some of the prior theories about what social media issues might be, right? So like, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election, it was like, oh my God, the problem with social media is that the Russians have, you know, figured out how to use it for psychological control. Or the problem with social media is that, Cambridge Analytica got a hold of of everyone's personal data. And I think those things, you know, I'm not saying that those things weren't notable events, uh, but just that I think there was a lot of time spent trying to figure out sort of what's wrong and also a lot of time just spent fighting over content moderation decisions, right? Like up or down, you know, should this piece of content exist on the platform? And I think those kind of missed the point. I think the thing I really loved about the Mark Zuckerberg um, October 2019 free speech address is that like here you have a guy talking about the absolute importance of being able to sort of like challenge, you know, of, of this de- the democratizing force of social media and how, you know, they would, you know, never censor anything. And at the same time, like the damn comments are just like censored to hell and back. Like they literally all involve involve the words like, Thank you, love, 
congratulations. Like those were the only comments that were making it through, like with very few exceptions. And, uh, you know, obviously I understand that you do have to filter public speakers stuff for hecklers um, because the internet's great at heckling. But the thing is they were filtering and they were filtering everything and, you know, there were choices being made. And so it wasn't like so much a like maniacal entity that was like trying to, you know, control what people said or thought or communicated so much as it was an entity that had designed a system that very clearly had impacts and like big impacts on how information spread, uh, but that was not being ever transparent about it, right? I mean, like the, you know, you'd ask Facebook, try to walk, you know, walk me through feed ranking. And it's like, oh, we connect you with uh, the people and things you care most about. And then you'd be like, wait, what the hell does that mean? Like, that is not a thing. Like, how does it actually work? And they'd be like, we, ca- we connect you with the things you care most about. And, and that was not a very helpful thing. And right, I think that was like kind of the origin of this stuff is that it was very apparent that the mechanics, like that these things weren't neutral platforms, that they were machinery, that they were, uh, you know, a compilation of decisions, you know, some of them philosophical, some of them extremely pragmatic, um, that had sort of produced a system for content recommendation. Um, and, you know, I think overwhelmingly, Maybe this was, it obviously wasn't what social media was in like 2007, 2008. Like that platform was pretty basic, you know, recommendations sort of really didn't exist in the form they exist now. But, you know, at this point, this is a curatorial and recommendation engine primarily with uh, some social network features added on top. It's not a social network that occasionally suggests content. You talk about being outside the company and feeling like you didn't have a strong understanding at one point of the machinery. And then I think this book makes clear that now you're in a different position. You know in Facebook incredibly well. You know the personalities. You know the structure. You know many of the details about complex internal decision-making and data. And you actually know it so well that we've had a running joke together over the last couple of years about you knowing it better than I do, even though I worked there for a long time. You could have you could have spent more time poking around workplace in unauthorized <laughs> places, Matt. That's true. That is, that is definitely <laughs> this is true. the secrets of reporting right here. Yeah. I, well, yeah, as an employee, I was a little allergic to workplace. But I'm curious about the reporting process that you used to develop that understanding. So how did you go from being at this place where you felt like an outsider to using the reporting process then to get to a place of deep understanding? I mean, this is, this is classic for any investigative stuff, um, you know, uh, is you start from the outside in, right? So, you know, you find the people who have been cited in the newspaper as having some level of experience and maybe they worked there in 2015 and you start figuring out what they know and then they tell you who to talk to and then sort of you, you know, kind of try to just keep on circling until you, uh, you find, you know, people who sort of actively have current information. And, and I think that like, it was, I think I, you know, I think I described myself in the book as like having become a groupie for anyone who understood like basically content ranking and recommendation systems. Uh, and, you know, that took a few years. Um, I, uh, I, I would say starting out in this beat was super rough because, you know, everybody else had sources. I didn't. And I think, you know, part of this is specialization, right? So like, instead of going into, there, I think there are a whole bunch of things you could have looked at. You could have looked at, you know, the VR world. You could have looked at like various political things, um, you know, content moderation focus. It was just like, okay, like actually what 
comes like what stays up and what comes down and the converse of that are like actually a lot less important than the question of what gets amplified in the first place and how things are transmitted. And so like, you know, getting people to explain to me that like the more you reshare content or the more content gets reshared, the more sensationalism slash factual accuracy concerns arise. Uh, like, I, you know, I would never have suspected that that was a, you know, a thing. It makes sense in hindsight that, you know, kind of like chain letters, right? Like, you know, the old like email, Bill Gates is going to give you a million bucks if you forward this to everyone in your address book stuff. Like there is sort of a loss of quality over time. Uh, and things like that though, like I, I don't think I understood just the basic principles and, you know, I think uh, to some degree, a, a big part of me learning about it was finding people who had um, been frustrated they couldn't change it, right? I mean, I, I often joke that like the um, biggest single asset I um, had in covering this company was that Facebook hired a bunch of tremendously intelligent, motivated people to study the defects of its platforms. And then it uh, left a lot of them feeling very much ignored. And, um, that's how you create a source for me, right? Is like, nobody wanted to talk to me. These are people who get paid a ton and have great jobs and, you know, their colleagues are nice and it's interesting work talking to a reporter. You don't mess that up, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to mess that up. But that said, like, I think the company made a significant portion of its staff so disillusioned by its own approach that candidly, it was pretty easy. So it's, it seems like over time, as you're describing it, as you got closer and closer to the company, you developed more respect for at least some of the people who were there. But as I read the book, what was striking to me is it seemed like you developed less and less respect for the institution. And that movement is a little bit contrary for me to what I how I assumed someone's views would unfold as they got to learn more about the company and more about social media. I've always thought that the deeper your understanding, the more you'd have empathy because the decisions are just so complicated and so many of the decisions have significant costs associated with them, I think that it can often be hard to understand exactly what the right one is. And the more you learn, the closer you are to some of those challenges. But it seems like you went in a different direction as you learned more. Yeah, no, don't don't get me wrong. There are yeah. there are hard trade-offs to be made in, in social media and in platform design. I just think that uh, Meta frequently didn't even get to them. Well, and there's one line... There's one line in the end of your intro that I thought was really powerful. You, you say you say toward the end that based on what you were learning, it was getting harder to assume good intent. So what what was it that you were seeing in your reporting that was making it seem more like more along the lines of there's acting in bad faith as opposed to there's complex decision decision making and that's really challenging. Well, okay, so certainly it doesn't start out that way. I think I think look, there's like it might have started out a little over optimistic, right? Like think back to like the aughts when Mark Zuckerberg is saying that Facebook is going to solve terrorism because people once they're fully online and using Facebook a lot will be so so interconnected they can't hate each other anymore. And obviously that didn't work out. But you know, I think so. Like they started out, I think, and perhaps it was a very convenient Pollyanna-ish point of view. You know, which is you know we're we're getting rich and making the world better, and you know everyone feels good about everything. And I think you know it kind of understand it makes sense that like this company would have just the move fast and break things makes a ton of sense. Approach makes a ton of sense when you're um, kind of in a brand new like media technological space, and there's a land grab going on, which there most certainly was, right? So like you know, being the guys who like, are like, I don't know, should we test this for another three months? That's a loser move. 
under those circumstances, right? Like it makes sense that the mentality that Facebook's leadership team had was going to be the winning mentality in in a in what was essentially a a land grab or a land rush. Like and so they just kind of built the thing and they optimized it for, you know, usage, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do if you're setting out to build a consumer product. And you know, I think that you can kind of get to where the company got with pretty good intent or at least certainly without any sense of maliciousness or of um, you know disregard uh, or negligence. The problem is that they started like pretty clearly it became apparent that the optimization work they've been doing for growth was actually contrary to optimization for both user safety and even what users actually told the platform they wanted from it. And you know, I think it's pretty stark when you see when you see the company telling its safety staff that they have literally zero budget to affect engagement, like that that daily active people, right, daily usage numbers, just can never, never be be like damaged by any measurable amount, right? Even like 0.05 percent, that's unacceptably high as a cost. At that point, like. Okay, like you can say you're really focused on doing safety work, but if you're like, if like, what exactly is the trade off if you're not willing to trade off against growth? And I, I think that, you know, it's very, very hard to find instances in which the company took a meaningful hit to growth. Like, and by meaningful, I mean even measurable, right? Not like big, you know, I think like at some point I, I would have assumed that, like, you know, like, look, it's a company, it's supposed to take care of itself, but like that there was truly no budget for integrity work, you know, to really like damage growth. And in fact, that somehow that things just kept shipping that the integrity people could see were making known integrity problems worse. It's just kind of hard to to say, oh, well, these there are tough trade-offs here. Like I'm sure that there there would be tough trade-offs, but like the answer like is are we willing to do anything that would be detrimental to growth ever? And if the answer to that is like no, then I, I don't know that you're getting to tough trade-offs. So that that leads really nicely into something I wanted to ask you, which is if you could kind of spell out what you mean by integrity, right? Because this is, I think, something that is so key to your reporting and to, to the book is the way that the work that we're sort of calling with a broad brush integrity here is spread out through Facebook as an organization and how those sort of organizational and institutional politics work. I'll, for the for the lawyers who are listening to this, I'll make a joke that, you know, Facebook is not, it's not a, a unitary executive, right? There's there's a lot of different, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, Mark Zuckerberg may be the one who makes the decisions, but there are a lot of different moving pieces that really shape what happens and how. And I think what your reporting shows is how the sort of arc of this kind of integrity, trust and safety work, whatever you want to call it, shapes and is shaped by the other institutional incentives. So what are these people who are working in this space that we're calling integrity? Yeah. And I think, look, I think they kind of came up with that name kind of on their own, I think in in a way that sort of like makes clear that this is something somewhat different than like past content moderation, you know, for kind of the open internet. Um, right. Like I think that, you know, there's always been people, you know, since the days of Yahoo message boards who had the job of like being like, okay, no child sex abuse. All right. All right. Like, nope, you did it. Okay. We're going to have to report you to law enforcement, taking your stuff down. Right. Like that's always existed. And so there's always been some safety people. I think 
integrity and sort of that name was a nod to the idea that, you know, the web 2.0, you know, sort of the, uh, the social media world couldn't be adequately governed simply by just like taking down the bad stuff when you found it. You know, that this was in some ways a question of platform design and also of, uh, you know, of network behavior. And that, you know, like you had to look at sort of how communities formed, how they grew, how they recruited. And uh, that sort of all of this was kind of like part of a, of a much bigger picture that kind of was going to have to be like completely rejiggered in terms of like this, the approach of safety and social media was going to have to be different than safety and I don't know, the comments in the Wall Street journals below a Wall Street Journal article. And, you know, I think that that like recognition is is a pretty key one. And, and interestingly enough, one that it oftentimes seems like company leadership really doesn't want to rec- recognize very much. Like I think the way that, you know, Mark in that 2019 speech and, and subsequently have has sort of discussed this stuff is like, well, you know, like, we can either let our platform do whatever it does or we must censor, right? And and like that's not the case. Like I think some of the, you know, the key things that people integrity were doing, like they were saying like, oh, guys, like it looks like when we allow people to friend 200 people a day and we're actually encouraging people to friend 200 people a day, that's going to be bad for the overall quality of integrity on the platform. Or like, you know, maybe... Um, having people opted into groups whenever they like a group post, like just like automatically they get joined is going to result in some crappy growth or, you know, there's any number of things or like maybe things that get reshared um, dozens of times in a row, you know, aren't necessarily, don't need to be boosted hard. These are all sorts of questions that I think are integrity questions. They're not like traditional safety questions. And so that kind of that name, uh, you know, it's a little amorphous, and I think almost intentionally so, because it was developed by people who um, uh, were not clear on like exactly what the parameters were for sort of this new world they were kind of responsible for. One of the themes in the book, I think, is you're making like a pretty sophisticated set of data arguments that when you measure certain things and then you have value judgments based on what you measure, you get outcomes that are consistent with those measurements. And sometimes that means if you're measuring the wrong things or you're measuring the right things, but in the wrong way, you get problematic results. So I think there's like a little bit of a Moneyball type dynamic to your book, which I really liked. Moneyball is the book by Michael Lewis that looked at how baseball inaccurately valued certain metrics over others. I will take 100th of his sales, just 100th of Moneyball's sales. I will happily take (laughs) keep going. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering if you can go into this a little bit. Like One of the details in the book is just to provide listeners with, a, with an example is you talk about how Facebook was measuring aggregate usage, which didn't account for how bad actors might skew the data. Essentially, you were saying it's the difference between looking at the mean or the average versus the median. And then another example is the launch of the meaningful social interactions metric. And you go into some detail about the problems, not with the concept itself, but with its implementation and the way that that metric was actually brought to life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, let's let's start with sort of the way the companies described it. And then we can talk about what might be a little closer to reality in some of these instances, which is that, I mean, the companies described itself, like Mark came up with the term, the fifth estate, right? The idea being that this is like this kind of fundamental democratic 
institution that everyone has a voice on the platform that is kind of like, you know, this is like Vox Populi, but immediate and, you know, a referendum on everything. And, you know, I think, yeah, absolutely. Anyone in the world can log on and anyone in the world can like something and them, you know, liking or sharing something is going to sort of alter the way things go on the platform in terms of how far content spreads. But that's sort of, okay. So like, you know, if if we start with that, that just everyone's going to have some impact on the platform, the question is how much impact and how is that levied, right? And so one could set it up so that every user has roughly the same impact. Maybe people who use Facebook four hours a day uh, have more impact than people who use Facebook two hours a day. But, you know, everyone has some sort of roughly proportional similar impact. That's not the way it was designed. The way it was designed is just aggregate number of actions, right? So if you are just literally posting 200 comments per hour, your commenting is going to have 200x the power of someone who has only post one comment per hour. Like it was designed that way, just truly linear. And you know, I think some people, one of the, um, the I think, a, a character in the book, Carlos Gomez Arribe, uh, he's actually a real person, not just a character. But uh, I mean, he came in with the idea that, you know, was put in part, part of uh, feed ranking integrity that like, actually, the best way to sort of fix some of the problems were to perhaps give the hyperactive users a little bit less power. And maybe if they did actually shift from, you know, every action weighs the same, to every user's actions net way the same or something closer to it, that they would actually make it a lot harder to manipulate the platform. And this was proposed. It would have significantly reduced uh, how much polarizing content spread around the platform because it turns out that highly polarized users are the platform's heaviest users. It uh, would have reduced misinformation because it turns out that the people who are just like banging the keyboard are not the most reliable uh, sources of information. And, you know, I think it would have like basically done a lot of the things that I think the company addressed a lot of the things the company was fighting um, over the years uh, as problematic behavior. And Mark Zuckerberg just hated it. Um, I mean, like allowed it to go through only watered down by an 80% margin. And, uh, you know, there's no reason like this is just like fundamental. It's just like, how do you count the value of an interaction? And the way Facebook always has counted the value of interaction, and there's been like some easing of this, uh, you know, some capping uh, in recent years. But like traditionally, the way Facebook does that is every interaction is worth the same. Please take as many actions as possible, and that to people who were had experience elsewhere in the world, uh, whether that was uh, Carlos Gomez Uribe at um, Netflix or um, Michael McNally, who worked at Google. I mean, these people understood that I think one of the hallmark rules of running anything on the internet is that your most hyperactive users are always your worst ones, right? The people who leave 60 reviews on Amazon per hour, like burn them all, right? Like none of those reviews are worth anything. The people who send 20,000 emails um, over the course of of a day, uh uh-oh, right? Like whereas with Meta, Outside of like some very minimal, like extreme spam porn, Ray-Ban glasses type stuff, the more you acted, the more Meta liked you and the more deference it gave you. And that's a choice that isn't really democratic, right? I mean, like they only let you vote once per election, right? And it's one that I think fundamentally skewed the platform and that 
to some degree, I, I think is like almost a like a starting point for like where some of these things went wrong. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I want to dig maybe a little bit more into this and kind of go beyond what you've described in terms of the substantive choices that are made and into the kind of institutional dynamics in in making those choices, which have to do with folks who do integrity work saying often, you know, this is going to lead to some really bad stuff down the line, or if they're not initially consulted, then looking at it with horror when it's brought to them, and then other portions of the company pushing back for a variety of reasons. And I, I do want to say, I mean, I think that this kind of these institutional dynamics and institutional dysfunction is something that I found really fascinating about the book and I think comes to a head in this sort of moment to, to kind of skip ahead in the story. When you describe uh, Frances Haugen's sort of final act before she leaves the company as downloading the org chart to hand over to you that I think really brings home just how central these institutional dynamics are. So how how does that kind of play out this push and pull between integrity and kind of everybody else in those decisions that you're describing? Yeah, I think, I mean, look, as I said earlier, I don't think there was a recognition initially that integrity work and growth work were going to be at loggerheads as often as they were. I think like there is this nice simplistic version of like, well, if we run a good, safe, healthy platform, then more people are going to use it. And that's like kind of true. But that said, like it's only true within limits. And it turns out that um, one, having a you know nice, friendly, like well-lit platform is hard to do. And two, that it is expensive. And three, that it actually does come at some at least near-term measurable usage growth. And I think that's, again, another place where like the metrics thing just rears its head, which is like the way that Facebook has traditionally measured whether something is good or bad for users is like, does making a change make usage metrics um, or engagement metrics go up in the next three to four weeks? And if the answer to that is yes, then they do it. Now, like there's definitely some theoretical categories of very unhealthy growth. And in fact, like actually some of the integrity people did demonstrate later on that they were not getting credit for changes they made that did have long-term healthy impact on the platforms that, you know, increased use, increased usage in healthy ways. You know, so I don't think they realized, I don't think they realized the degree to which uh, integrity and growth teams were going to be at loggerheads on a regular ongoing basis, right? That like, at least in terms of near-term impact and long-term is a different matter, but um, at least in terms of near-term impact, pretty much everything the integrity people wanted to do was going to be bad for distribution or bad for engagement. And the reason for that was, is that the platform was already optimized uh, as perfectly as they were capable of to maximize engagement. So any departure from like that path was going to come at a loss. 
and uh, at least in terms of what they couldn't measure immediately. So you have this like kind of tug of war, except the problem is in terms of staff numbers, uh, you know, number of staff in terms of uh, clout, this thing is just wildly lopsided. Like I think that something that's like still amazes me is that, you know, the, the content moderation policy people, they rolled up to the lobbyists and the integrity and safety staff rolled up to the growth team, right? Like these are not equal footing operations, right? And so like, I think what happened just very regularly was that whenever there was a, um, whenever there was a, a disagreement over what was good for users, it would end up being adjudicated by someone who was generally more interested in the, uh, in the, the company's standard growth metrics than it was in, you know, the stuff that the integrity people were pushing. And, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't win most of the fights they, um, they drew. I think like there's kind of, I used to joke with people who worked there that um, if they had a great idea that got shot down, that they could, uh, should just wait two years. And that maybe then at that point they would, you know, the company would pick it up. But like, this just was a kind of almost a hostile environment to anything that was a departure from the straight growth platform. And in fact, I think some of the people in newsfeed ranking even used the words user value was synonymous with usage time. In other words, we increased user value means that like people spent more time on the platform and like that was viewed as being an inherent good, which again, like I'm not saying there might not be a correlation, but that seems, uh, shall we say, like you're you're deliberately setting yourself up to miss things. The the book ends with kind of a, a bit of a twist. I wouldn't say I gasped, but it was definitely a, a surprise where you kind of reveal, as you've hinted at, that despite this very data-driven focus on growth over and at the expense of your IQ integrity, it turns out that the company has actually been mismeasuring the effects of integrity policies. And in the long term, they seemingly actually grow platform use. So I'm, I'm curious how sort of what you made of that late stage development and looking forward, whether you think there's hope that that might actually change how the platform functioned and is governed. I mean, it's just like so depressing, right? I mean, I think for people who did the integrity work, it was extremely deflating. I mean, somebody was, was like reanimating it, it, you know, proved the point that they'd been trying to make for years. But on the other hand, like the company had been making decisions based on what was good for growth and they'd been making them wrong based on what this thing, what this research showed. And like, I think the fascinating thing was how the company initially responded, right? Is this had been set up by integrity staffers and core data science people, you know, just trying to sort of like answer the question of like, well, if users want what you're doing, why do they use the platform less when we do it? And the fascinating thing was that you could see a chart, all the integrity stuff tended to, in the first six months, it was a net negative for uh, usage. The uh, six months later, it had come back to zero, right? In other words, there was no longer, you know, integrity changes made a year before, no alteration, uh, you know, no loss. And then after that, it turned positive. And so this doesn't say that like, it doesn't say exactly how a platform should be run. Um, but what it does say is that the line between growth and safety that the company had, um, uh, decide, you know, it wasn't what the company thought it was. Uh, and in fact, that like very clearly, the integrity interventions should have been stronger. How much stronger? Hard to say. Like at some point, obviously, a perfectly safe platform is a perfectly boring platform. And, you know, you don't, like you can definitely overdo it, but the, the company, what this stuff demonstrated was the company was clearly underdoing it. And 
I think the response to that work was kind of fascinating. It was like kind of awkward. It wasn't shared that broadly. And like, as soon as this finding came out, you know, they spent six months basically before they were even allowed to share it because management wanted that thing red teamed. Because to some degree, this is like a pretty provocative thesis, which is that the company has like literally been optimizing for nothing, if that makes sense, or optimizing for for something negative, negative for growth, negative for, uh, you know, like user sentiment, negative for um, uh, user well-being, however you measure that. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, you don't want to overstate it and say that like, oh, you know, everything should be 180 degrees different, but like very clearly the company the company's own metrics here were um, skewed in favor of anything that was going to provide a short-term hit. And, you know, I think one of the most fascinating things about that, that research was it found that the, the biggest gains in usage were coming from irregular users and new users, right? Like namely the most valuable users that, that um, the platform could have, right? Is it turns out that this was turning off people who would have spent more time on a healthier platform. So I want to pivot to the Facebook files. And I think there's obviously an extensive public record out there on the substance of the files due at least initially to to your reporting, the journal's reporting. I think probably lots of people who are listening are familiar with that with that public record. But one of the things that I thought was really extraordinary about the book, it was really fascinating to me, is the behind the scenes narrative that you tell about some of the specific decisions around publishing, around working with Frances Haugen, around her interactions with an organization called Whistleblower Aid, and all these little decisions that, or I shouldn't say little, individual decisions as well as big decisions. I mean, a lot of decisions that had a big impact around the specific mechanics of how you brought that information out into the light. Is that something you can talk a little bit more about? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, look, it, it was my relationship with Francis, uh, I think was uh, extremely, like, we spent a lot of time together. We talked for months before sort of things really began on the scale that they ended up. You know, I spent, this is covered in the book, I spent, you know, three weeks plus in Puerto Rico, basically, like, almost as like a colleague <laughs> in the sense that, like, you know, we'd, we'd meet every day and talk about um, what she was finding when she was sort of doing her probe of of um, workplace, Facebook workplace. During that period of time, she accumulated the vast majority of the 20,000 plus pages of things that she gathered, I believe. And I think it was, a you know, like, first of all, tremendous respect to her as source. Uh, she's, I mean, I've never had somebody, I think I cover this in the book, like most of the time people who get frustrated with the company or, you know, sort of disillusioned, they burn out, they quit, and then they talk to a reporter. Francis knew that was going to happen to her if she did that. And it was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, um, I'm going to do what I can while I'm still here. And that is a tremendously tough job. Um, it's, you know, kind of to some degree being a, um, you know, it requires like basically being surreptitious. Uh, it requires uh, you know risk of getting caught. And, like this is all like very psychologically hard. And and she did it. I mean, like to a level that was like amazingly dedicated. Like to the point where like literally at the you know in her final hours, I was like, all right, we're supposed to go to a celebratory dinner, Francis. Let's get going. And like I had to like go down and you know pay the cab driver twenty bucks to like wait because she was still you know trying to view things <laughs> like the, you know, the last scraps in her remaining moments. And 
I think it's a it's a difficult and weird transition to go from having a um a, a absolutely star amazing source to go going to having a um a star whistleblower advocate source. You know, like these are different things, right? Is um and different roles. And I think, you know, the question of what was the best way to present this stuff, obviously, like we had our approach and the wall street journal, by the way, is deeply slow. That is the, one of the, um, inherent traits. Uh, and frequently that's a good thing, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, there was definitely frustration on, uh, you know, sort of from people in her camp. Um, and cause she definitely did develop a bit of a entourage with sort of the speed, uh, that we were going. And, uh, I think we were frustrated to some degree, with some of the choices in terms of like how to share the documents. Um, you know, there was this kind of consortium of other news outlets that were called in three or four weeks after we started publishing and sort of handed the thing. And I, I think, you know, Francis, to her credit, one of the things that I think she, she wanted very much early on was for this stuff to be public record uh, as much as possible, like for the information to be something that anybody anywhere in the world could review to at least understand what was happening with the platform and maybe build something better. And the journal didn't publish the documents itself for the most part, right? We published little excerpts. uh, And that's something that I um, wasn't happy about at the time and definitely have not come around on. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of things that the journal did that were amazing and and provided a lot of support and did, I think, you know, like some really good editing and smart thinking about how to roll things out. And, you know, my colleagues were amazing. I wish we'd been able to put out those documents. I think that was a a tense thing, you know, and to some degree it was uh, like, oh, well, you know, uh, it's it's no longer our baby, if that makes sense. Well, and you had also spent months doing careful reporting Right and going and going like very methodically through the documents, and then all of a sudden they're out in the public, and reporters are trying to get stories out the door really quickly. Right, which is a very different style. Yeah, of this is this is the this is the, the positive side of what I referenced to the Wall Street Journal being slow. Is that I think we are uh, we are fairly cautious and and uh, fairly thorough, and you know I I uh, I think there were were some really great stories actually that came out from the the rebranded Facebook papers. Uh, you know, there were a few of them that I was like, oh yeah, that's an amazing angle. Like, you know, either that's one that I didn't think of or that, you know, like, you know, we just didn't get to because I mean, hell, you know, we wrote 50,000 plus words on, you know, in just in that series. So there was some really great stuff that came out of it. At the same time, I think there was a a lot of like, just a lot of kind of noise. And, uh, you know, I, I worry sometimes that, you know, what came out of it was like Facebook bad scandal as opposed to the social media internet does not have to be this way. And there are very particular things that have, you know, choices that have been made that, that fundamentally have skewed the experience and skewed its impact on the world in ways that, shall we say, were uh, never open to a, uh, a democratic vote. So I, I have this very vivid memory of talking to you when you were working on this story and you were asking for my feedback on some of the materials that you were seeing. And so you sent me some screenshots of, of the screenshots that, that Francis Haugen had taken. And we were talking through some of the substance. And I said at one point, independent of the substance, I now have a sense of how you got access to this story. I can see that it came via a leak. And at least from my standpoint, particularly because I had lived through years of leaking when I was at Facebook and had really felt that it had this problematic deeply problematic impact on company decision-making and on 
the trust that you would have in your colleagues. I said that to you and talked a little bit about my concerns about it. And you had a different view. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that disagreement now. I mean, can you talk about your views on getting materials in this way? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. My view is 100% different in the sense that there was always going to be hell to pay. Um, I mean, Francis knew that. I knew that. In fact, like one of the motivating things, you know, that that we talked about was that clearly the company was just sloppy as hell in terms of information control internally. Like they never knew how to like they Facebook's never been great at search, right? So they like literally couldn't find the stuff that was sensitive to lockdown, even after it became apparent that you know there was a restive employee base. But, uh, but can I actually can I put a different yeah. spin on it, just in part, just for the sake of disagreement? But I, I actually think there are sort of twin values at work here. One is I, I agree you could frame it as not good at locking down sensitive information, and another is a transparent company culture where they wanted people at the company to be able to understand a whole bunch of different things based on the assumption that that would be kept internal. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, historically I think historically I think the open trusting company culture uh was actually really important and really valuable and and I think is was an amazing trait of uh company culture. I think that however part of that trusting sort of culture is that people internally have to feel like decisions are being made in a reasonable way and with good intent. And if you lose that, then at that point, I think it becomes, you know, or and if you lose the faith that let's say the company is going to act in appropriate and responsible ways when presented with information uh, and is going to allow work to be done on sensitive subjects that, um, you know, let the chips fall where they may. If you lose that sense, then I don't know how much value there is to having a open, um, you know, company culture if, uh, you know, the work that gets done just gets ignored. Like to some degree, I think one of the reasons why, and I think, you know, Francis and I, I think both understood that there was going to be quite a crackdown uh, after all of this happened because what, whatever mix of, of sloppiness versus, you know, good transparency there was. And to be fair, like if we're talking about like a slide deck presentation from Meta's senior leadership to Mark about teen mental health with all of the comments in line, like, you know, in review draft form being available to 55,000 employees, that's not open, that's sloppy, right? Um, open is, I think, allowing good debate and people to share work and all of that. But, you know, whichever, whichever mix it was, you know, there's, there's definitely a loss there. And afterward, uh, there was a crackdown. But that said, like, it's also hard to say like, oh, you know, everyone should just completely, you know, should leave Facebook documentation alone and internal um, so they can continue to do research that people won't listen to in leadership, right? That was kind of the issue. And so I, I, and I don't think I have a, um, I'm not dogmatic about this. I, I don't think that leaking is always, you know, the right thing to do. Um, I do, however, think that if you are in possession of documentation that demonstrates serious, real harm that is unmitigated, and that is a, a choice not to mitigate and that the company is not being forthright about those decisions and what those trade-offs are. Uh, I don't know. That seems like to me like a much easier call. And even if it's going to be make things harder for colleagues, which it definitely did. So one of the other subplots of the book is the sort of complicated dynamics, I guess I'll say, between Facebook or the social media ecosystem more broadly and journalism itself. 
Um, obviously, there are tensions between journalists and tech companies in terms of just dominance over the media ecosystem. But there's also a, a dynamic where, you know, it, it can be kind of difficult to report well on social media companies because of those same dynamics that you're writing about in the book. You have there's an incredible anecdote where Adam Masseri, who heads Instagram, has a sort of very measured nuanced response to your reporting. Uh, in an interview, which is then picked up and sort of splashed in a bunch of headlines in a way that completely misrepresents what he's saying, but is a lot better for sort of angry clickbait. So I'm curious how you thought about producing journalism that actually, you know, tells people something new about Facebook uh, without falling into this trap of producing outrage bait. Yeah, look, I think if you read the book, you you certainly might come away with the idea that some um, significant mistakes were made or that there might be some intent issues that arise. But that said, like, I think one of the things was just focusing on mechanics, like the great news about these documents is that, you know, while it's very hard to tell what social media's impact is on society at large long term, right? Like, is, is social media causing polarization? Is it the primary of cause of po- polarization? Like, these are not things that really are ever going to be set, settled super easily because you can't run a A-B test in which Facebook doesn't exist in an alternate world. But I think what you can do is tell very clearly that the company is making decisions that directly affect how and what content, how it bounces around the platform, what gets amplified, and that the company is like vastly more powerful in terms of you know setting up the system uh, than you know, it, it would like to, you know, then, then its status as a quote unquote platform might suggest. I think that for journalism about this stuff, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very hard for things not to get contentious um, in, in some of this stuff. And I think there have been, you know, definitely interests like the, the love, hate, love, hate affair uh, over, um, you know, Facebook and journalism, I think is like a fascinating one to write about, right? Which is that like, simultaneously, people were saying you're corroding the entire ecosystem. And then Facebook actually tried making news less prominent. And, you know, all the publishers screamed like hell, both, you know, the shall we say, the more respectable publishers and the fly-by-night ones. And so I, I, I don't know that like we've ever sort of sorted out the relationship in the same way that like, and to some degree, it's not that different, right? Like we are, both journalism and social media do try to maximize engagement. Um, I think the difference is that the journalism side has a lot of humans in the loop and um, we're also much less good at it. So there's both some element of like, editorial judgment um, that comes in that isn't just like, okay, whatever is going to maximize clicks for the day. And then there's also just a a level of like, I mean, we're never going to be as competent at targeting information that will maximize engagement as a a machine learning based ranking system. So you end the book on a bit of a grim note, writing that you'd hope that your reporting could force a reckoning for Facebook, but that it might have just added up to a lot of bad press. And then elsewhere, you also write that the story of, and this is a quote, the story of Facebook's integrity work is, in many respects, the story of losses that the people you write about, and again, a quote, uncovered flaws and helped mitigate awful outcomes, but they failed to persuade the world's largest social media company to fundamentally reevaluate how it built and managed its products. 
That's pretty grim. <laughs> is is the story as grim as all that? Are there any signs that anything has changed either within Facebook or, you know, among uh, the ecosystem writ large um, in terms of, you know, new companies that are being developed, other companies? Or do you see the landscape sort of continuing down the same path that you chart here? I think, look, aside from the company pausing, quote unquote, Instagram for kids. Um, I don't know that there are that many obvious things that we can cite that sort of emerged out of this. Uh, I mean, I think there, you know, the DSA, Digital Services Act in the EU definitely, um, I think, bears some influence on this uh, or bears some influence from from sort of Francis Haugen's documents and kind of the public understanding of them. But, you know, nothing out of certainly the US government ever really materialized to date. I mean, I think there's still an effort to um, uh, work on child safety stuff. But, you know, even though that was kind of an area that was kind of hailed as a bipartisan piece of common ground, I think if I'm thinking about things that are like really good that came out of it, I think one of them is that there is a very large collection of former staffers at the company who are like candidly fairly well trained (laughs) via battle on the dynamics of platforms and uh, you know how to design things responsibly and how to govern them responsibly, and that they are now talking right when i when I began this you know sort of effort to try to get to people who understand facebook's mechanics uh, like it, it was really few and far between in terms of people who would actually speak up you know these days it you know like I could call like dozens of people who are out publicly discussing these things, like the Integrity Institute and um, uh, is certainly one of them. Um, also the uh, uh, the Trust, Trust and Safety Professional Association. Um, I mean, they, they long pre-exist this, but that they, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of expertise out there. And I think a lot of expertise that is now sort of consulting with regulators, running kind of experiments that demonstrate the weaknesses of various things, um, you know, kind of duplicate some of the work that they did inside of, uh, of the company. So I, I would say that like at this point, the mechanics stuff is now largely public record. Uh, I mean, Harvard's uh, archive of these documents has actually gone live um, and, you know, anyone can now get access to pretty much all of the findings that Francis Haugen documented. And so like, yeah, my hope is that, is that that's going to be used by people um, who want to do things perhaps in a different way than, than Meta did, want to address, you know, before they roll out features, the things that, you know, Meta found out after the fact were the issues that arose from them. So I think that would be the you know, sort of the main point of optimism as opposed to that, like, somehow somebody came in and fixed social media or meta or the internet, you know, like, I don't know, I guess my, I guess my hope is is that for, for you start with the understanding of what these choices are and their implications. And then at that point, something better comes out of it in the future rather than like, you know, at the end of the day, everything gets fixed and turnarounds occur where turnarounds are due or whatever. Let's leave it there. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.